worship team. Um, if you have a copy of God's Word, would you take it and open it to the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I know some of you read ahead and I've had several comments and um, things about this passage. It is, as we go along, as we preach through the words, we preach through the books of the Bible, we oftentimes come to passages that we uh, don't understand or very, very difficult, but we also come across those very familiar passages. And this is one of those today. We're turning to what is perhaps the most famous of Jesus' parables, and that is the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. This parable is loved, well-loved by Christians, certainly, but also non-Christians for its just simplicity, its beauty, its vivid images, its rich language, its ethical profundity, a lot of exhortation here about how to do good to others. But the parable comes in the context of a controversy between Jesus and one of his religious opponents. And as Jesus is actually in this controversy, as he is in this debate, as he's put on the spot, really, Jesus is not just simply answering the questions of an opponent, he is instructing his own disciples. He's teaching them about their own relationships with other people and how those relationships connect to the larger relationship, the more significant relationship that we have with God. The parable asks two questions of profound importance that lie at the heart of Christian faith and discipleship. And how we answer these questions both theologically and practically reveals much about the kind of disciples that we really are. So let's look at the passage, chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to him to, to, the, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this. And you will live. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, The one... Who showed him mercy? And Jesus said to him, Go, you go, 
and do likewise. As you can see, there are two significant questions in the passage that kind of govern the passage. They really form their own paragraphs, right? First question in verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The second question coming in verse 29, and who is my neighbor? And I want to just use those two questions as the basis for our outline this morning. Just kind of work through the passage. So let's start with the first question in verses, in verse 25. It covers the paragraph in verses 25 to 28. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I just would point you to the fact that a lawyer is asking this question to Jesus. And it's a good question. It's actually a, a very good question. It's an essential question. But the lawyer doesn't seem to be genuinely interested in the answer. In fact, we, there are several clues in the passage that reveal he has a nefarious purpose in mind. So this encounter is really not so much a serious inquiry or an honest debate between two Jewish scholars. This is more a pointed confrontation. The lawyer is confronting Jesus, as it says in verse 1, to put him to the test. Now, a lawyer here is a Jewish scribe. It's another word for scribe. Scribes were known because they wrote. What were they writing? They were copying the ancient text, primarily the scriptures, what we would call today the Old Testament. And they did so because they were educated. They could read and they could write. And so because of their ability to read and write, because of their, their task of copying the scriptures, they knew the scriptures extremely well. And because of their knowledge, the Jewish people would come to them and seek out answers. They would, they would be consulted for a variety of, of interpretations or applications of the scriptures, especially matters pertaining to the law. They, these lawyers were, uh, were giving legal opinions, so to speak about the practical matters that were related to the Scriptures. And if, just as an example, we go and reread the law, the Old Testament law, and we see that there are some things there that just seem out of date to us. They seem just a different culture, a different time, things that aren't necessarily pertinent. And even in the first century, there would have been some of those things as well. And so they would maybe go and take the Word of God and say, come to the lawyers and ask for an interpretation or an application. How do I apply this ancient Word of God to my life today? Now, the word is used, the word lawyer is used eight times in the New Testament. Six of those times occur in Luke, and always in Luke in a negative sense. According to Luke, and I'm not going to give you the cross-references here, but if you were to do a word study of, of the word lawyer across the Gospel of Luke, you, we would see that the lawyers rejected God's appointed messenger, they rejected John the Baptist, they rejected Jesus, and they also rejected the Gospel message that they proclaimed. In fact, Jesus in chapter 11 condemns the lawyers for their hypocrisy, for their burdensome leadership, for their failure to obey the Scriptures, and for their rejection of the kingdom of God. And so the appearance of a, the very appearance of a lawyer here in this passage should raise our suspicions. It should indicate to us something, something negative is coming. That this lawyer is coming looking for blood, if you will. He is coming to confront Jesus and to enter into some kind of hostile argument. Well, Jesus, Luke also reveals the motive of the lawyer's questioning in verse 25 when he says uh, that, he stood, that the lawyer stood to put Jesus to the test. And the word that's translated there, to put to the test, means to test thoroughly. In a negative sense, it can also mean to tempt the only other time this word appears in the Gospel of Luke is in chapter 4, verse 12, where Jesus rebuked Satan for putting God to the test. 
right? In the last temptation, Satan was tempting Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the, of the temple in Jerusalem and have the angels protect him, gather him before he hit the ground. And Jesus responded to that temptation by saying, Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Don't test God. Don't put him to the test. And so the lawyers here, just on the basis of the word study, appears to be satanic. He's not a genuine seeker looking to Jesus for truth. He's trying to lure Jesus into a trap, either to discredit Jesus or to prove his own uh, standing as a superior teacher to Jesus. And so he poses the question in verse 25, what shall I do to inherit, any, inherit eternal life? And as we said, that question is a good one. It's an important one. It's an essential one. If human beings are under the curse of sin, and we will all be raised at the end from the dead to face final judgment, how then can a person be assured that they will not be condemned but have eternal life. Wouldn't that be a scary proposition? We're all going to die. We're all sinful. We're all worthy of God's judgment. We're all going to be raised up on the last day. We're all going to stand before God, our judge. Wouldn't we want to know what's going to cause us to avoid that judgment and enter into eternal life? That's the ultimate question. Not just for this lawyer, or not even just for the Jews in general, but for everyone. Now, the word inherit means to obtain an inheritance. It also means to receive a possession as one's own. To the Jewish mind, the word inherit would maybe call to mind, would probably call to mind the book of Joshua, the conquest of Canaan. God promised Israel the land of Canaan, right? When he brought them up out of Egypt, he said he would take them to a land that he would give to them. He promised that land to Israel as an inheritance, as their own possession, so that they might live in that land and live out the covenant relationship that God had made with them at Mount Sinai. Now, in Jesus' day, that inheritance took on a new sense, a new understanding. It was considered not just to be the land, but more broadly the kingdom of God, the place where God dwelt, the place where God ruled over His people, not just for a limited time, but forever. God promised that he would send his Messiah to set up his kingdom and that he would rule over his people forever. So, the eternal life that the lawyer here is asking about or speaking about is eternal life. It's, it's life in the kingdom. He's asking, how does one enter into the kingdom of God and enjoy life with God in that kingdom? And again, that's a question that every one of us should be asking it's a great question to ask other people too. Because we need to be reminded of our mortality. We are all going to die. We are all going to stand before God to give an account of our lives. And when we get to that point, it will be too late. And so we must ask it now. We must search out the answer now. How can we know that we have eternal life? Well, Jesus indicates that the Scriptures hold the answer to the question, right? Instead of giving a direct answer in verse 26, he redirects the lawyer and turns the question back on him. He says, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he's not just simply placing the burden on the lawyer to answer the question. He is redirecting him to the scriptures that contain the answer to the question. Now, the law that is mentioned there, the word law, you can see it, my translation is capitalized. It's referring specifically to the first five books of the Old Testament. Those 
books in which God revealed mostly laws to his people. The guidelines for covenant relationship, by doing those things, that would be how the Israelites lived out the covenant of grace that God had made with them at Mount Sinai. But law could also be interpreted more broadly to refer to the entire Scripture. The law was not just simply those five books, but all that God revealed to His people. Everything that God had made known through the law, through the prophets, through the writings, the Psalms, all those things were God's revealed word to His people. And so Jesus is not just looking at just those five books, but what does Scripture say about this matter? How does Scripture answer this question? So Jesus here is affirming the authority of Scripture, right? After all, Scripture is the Word of God. It's what God has revealed about Himself. It's what He's revealed about life. It's what He revealed about how we can live in a relationship with Him. Scripture supplies those answers because God revealed those answers to His people long ago. So what did God say about inheriting eternal life in the past? Because those answers remain just as true for the lawyer as they were when God first gave them to his people Israel at Mount Sinai. So by, putting, by pointing the lawyer back to Scripture, he's also streamlined the lawyer's argument. You may know that many of these Jewish scholars, the Pharisees, the scribes, often depended upon oral tradition. They depended upon the rabbinic uh, discussions and debates and dialogues back and forth. You could, if you were a high-standing rabbi and you made some interpretation, that interpretation could be considered almost as authoritative as Scripture. In fact, you go and read books like the, the Talmud or the Mishnah, you see just nothing but argumentation back and forth among the various rabbis, and those arguments would be considered to be authoritative. But Jesus is just streamlining the lawyer here and saying, look, just tell me what the Scripture says. The lawyer can only appeal to Scripture because it is revealed truth. And so he puts the lawyer on the spot, but the lawyer answers back in a very traditional Jewish way by giving to Jesus the two main guideposts for covenant living found in the Old Testament. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as Yourself, Jesus referred to these in another place, in another time, as the greatest commandments. The first citation there, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, is a citation of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, in which Moses, God through Moses, was calling Israel to love Him totally and completely with one's entire being. In fact, the Jews would recite this. It's referred to as the Shema. The Jews would recite this twice a day as a declaration of their love and devotion and faith in God who rescued them from Egypt and called them into a special covenant relationship. The second citation there, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is, comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, in which God calls his people to love their neighbors, to love those around them. Because Jesus later links these two commands together as the greatest commandments, they go hand in hand. Loving God completely includes loving one's neighbor. And loving one's neighbor is a demonstration, a supreme demonstration of one's love for God. The rest of the law depended upon these two commands because they were applications of those two commands. And so Jesus, in verse 28, responds back to the lawyer very positively. You have answered correctly, he says. 
He's affirming here. In fact, it's very emphatic in the Greek. Jesus is affirming the lawyer's answer. He's absolutely right. Despite the lawyer's attempt to trip up Jesus, Jesus commends the lawyer's answer. And then, in the second part of the verse, Jesus exhorts the lawyer to do the thing that he has said. Verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. So if the lawyer, he says, obeys these commands, he will live. He will inherit eternal life. That's the answer to his question. Now, some have suggested that Jesus is advocating a works-based righteousness. That the lawyer's inheritance of eternal life is dependent upon what he does and not upon faith. I think that's a, a misunderstanding and a misreading both of Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 in Jesus' words to the lawyer here. The love of God, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, is really a call to faith. Loving God with one's heart, soul, mind, and strength is a commitment of oneself to God. It's an entrusting of oneself to God's love and to His care and to a relationship with Him. And this relationship, predicated upon God's love for His people and His people's trust of God, is the ground of the covenant. Remember that God chose Israel to be His people. He called Israel into a covenant relationship with himself. Exodus chapter 19. Before Israel did a single thing, God had chosen them and called them and brought them to himself. And the covenant is sealed in chapter 24 with a sacrifice. Much like the new covenant, right? We've been chosen in Christ. That, the foundation of that relationship, the foundation of that choosing is sealed in the blood of Christ, his death on the cross. A very similar case happens here. God chose his people, sealed in a sacrifice. What was Israel to do? Israel was to trust. Israel was to entrust herself to God, to receive what God had given her, and to express that trust in love and care, to live out that relationship by devoting herself entirely to God. Don't worship idols. Don't forsake God's commandments. Live out this relationship of trust through complete allegiance and total love and devotion to God. Likewise, eternal life is more than just living forever. I think we tend to think about that, right? Eternal life is just simply what happens when we die and it goes on and never ends. Certainly, it includes that. But eternal life is life lived in relationship with the one who lives forever. Eternal life is life with God lived through a relationship with him. It's what Jesus said in John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life. And he's not talking, I mean, certainly it includes this, but his main focus here is not on this life that your people have after they die that goes on forever. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. Eternal life is knowing God. The word knowing there is a word of relationship. Eternal life, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. Now, God has eternally committed himself to us in Jesus Christ. And how do we respond to that commitment? By committing ourselves to him in utter love and devotion. I can't bring anything to the table. I simply can receive what he brings to me, what he gives to me. And so I lay down my life in submission and devotion and love. 
At the heart of entering eternal life is a relationship of devotion that places God at the center of one's spiritual life. That is ultimately what faith is. Faith is a trust in God that makes him the center of one's life. By entering into that relationship through faith, then we have eternal life. And that devotion to God, then, is expressed in loving others, our neighbors. There is no distinction. Jesus doesn't make any distinction here between devotion to God and treatment of other people. So by exhorting the lawyer here to do this, Jesus is not only answering the lawyer's question, right? What shall I do? You notice the emphasis there in the word do? The, the lawyer asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, do this, the thing you said. So he's not only answering the, the lawyer's question, he's also calling him to real faith. Jesus implies that this faith is not merely an intellectual or theological curiosity, which would have been very important for a lawyer or a Pharisee or a scribe or a rabbi at that time. It was all about what you knew, and it was very little about what you do. Jesus here is calling the lawyer to conform himself to the truth of the Scriptures, that if he truly believes his own answer, he will walk in this. He will walk in this relationship of faith and trust in God. And his obedience would be evidence of that faith. But doing this, this exhortation to do this, also means that the lawyer must submit himself to Jesus. Right? If the lawyer truly loves God and trusts God as the greatest commandment calls for, then he too must receive Jesus. Right? Because by receiving Jesus, you are receiving the God who sent Jesus. Right? Back in chapter 9, verse 48. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So if you want to receive God, you've got to receive Jesus. By receiving Jesus, you also receive God, because God is the one who sent Jesus into the world to bring about this salvation, to give this eternal life. Likewise, to reject Jesus ultimately means that one is rejecting God. Look back at verse 16 in chapter 10. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So to reject Jesus, if the lawyer rejects Jesus here, he is rejecting God, and he is not doing the thing, the very thing he said must be done in order to have eternal life. In fact, Jesus is the one whom God has chosen to make this way of salvation known to sinful men. Back in verse 21 of this chapter, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This lawyer cannot know God properly and love God properly and entrust himself to God properly unless he receives this word from Jesus. Because God has given this truth to Jesus to reveal to whomever he will. So if this man truly wants to put these words into action, if he wants to do this, he must, the lawyer must trust Jesus. That is what Jesus is calling this man to do. And if he will trust in Jesus, and Jesus will bring him into his kingdom where he will take eternal life as his own real possession. Now, before we move on to the next question, let me challenge you to give this serious consideration first. What shall 
you do to inherit eternal life. And I think that this is not just simply an answer that a lot of in our culture are asking, right? What's your way, right? You determine your own path. You, you choose your own truth. Follow your heart to find your purpose. You search out your way. for It's different for everybody. You, you've got to make your own way, make your own path. And that's plain dangerous because it will lead you to, a wrong place, to the wrong place every time. All of those paths lead to one place. They lead to hell because they lead you away from God. This question the lawyer poses, though he intended to be malicious or nefarious, is the essential question of life because there's only one answer. There's only one way. Apart from Christ, we deserve death, both death in this life and death in the next one. And there, if we proceed through this life without coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we will receive eternal death. God will mete out His righteous judgment to us in the eternal flames of hell. We will all die. We all have an appointment with judgment. But life continues beyond the grave. The only hope we have of averting death and gaining eternal life is Jesus Christ. He is God's chosen one. He is God's Messiah. He is the one whom God sent to establish His kingdom. And He did so by dying on a cross and rising from the dead. He paid the penalty for our sins and crushed death forever so that we might gain the eternal inheritance of life together with God. And so if we will do this, if we will submit ourselves to King Jesus, we will be saved. And we give evidence that we are trusting in Christ by loving God with all of our being, by entrusting ourselves to Him and by devoting ourselves to Him, bearing evidence of that trust in loving our neighbors as ourselves. Friends, if you don't know whether you have eternal life or not, then you need to really consider this question. And if you need help processing that, talking it out, learning more, then talk to someone. I'm happy to talk to you. Let's sit down and talk about it. Children, I would encourage you to talk to your parents. Ask them this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Parents, talk to your children. Brothers and sisters, pose this question to your unbelieving family and friends, maybe your neighbors, whoever it is in your life, because this is a question of eternal consequence. And it behooves the disciples of Jesus to consider their own possession of eternal life, even as we help others to find it as well. And that brings us then to the lawyer's second question in verse 29. Who is my neighbor? And again, Luke exposes the lawyer's motivation. He says that he was desiring to justify himself. That word justify means to prove oneself right. Or it could mean to vindicate. So either he wants to prove himself to be the winner of this argument, that he is the true interpreter of Scripture, or he wants to vindicate his own actions. He wants to show that he is doing what it takes at present to inherit eternal life. He desires to justify himself. And so he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Because by defining who neighbor is, he can show that he's right. He can show that he's doing what is necessary to inherit eternal life. Notice that the emphasis, well, 
in the Greek language, the emphasis is on the word who. Who is this person? If, it, if inheriting eternal life is dependent upon loving one's neighbor, then I think we can understand the lawyer's question, right? Because if I've got to love my neighbor, I've got to know who my neighbor is. I can't love my neighbor unless I know who he is. I can't love him properly. I can't do the very thing that Jesus has exhorted him to do. The problem is that by defining who the neighbor is, the lawyer is creating two categories, is he not? He's creating the category of neighbor, those whom I love, and the non-neighbor, those he is not obligated to love. He assumes that there are people out there that he is to love, he should love, he will love, and he is also assuming at the same time that there are people out there that he has no obligation to love. The lawyer wants to soften Jesus' words here. Wants to even soften what the Scripture says because this is written in Leviticus, right? The words of Scripture, the words of God, the lawyer is trying to soften those words. If the definition of neighbor is open-ended, then there's no greater demand to love. It softens that exhortation, it, it, it softens the obligation. Right now, the way Leviticus reads, the bar is set high. If my neighbor is everyone, then I've got a, I've got a pretty tall bar to clear. But if there are some people who are not my neighbor, and I don't have to love them, then I can lower the bar. I can do just what is sufficient to inherit eternal life. I can, I can offer the minimum obedience required. We do that sometimes, I think, too. What's the very minimum obedience that I can offer to be able to clear the bar and still be right in God's eyes? But by offering minimum obedience here, the lawyer does not understand the greatest commandment because he's not offering total obedience to God. That's what God says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's everything. That's a Jewish way of saying your entire being and so to say that there are some people who are not neighbors, then that means I don't have to love them, therefore I'm not giving God my total commitment. Because loving God means I love my neighbor. The Jewish rabbis debated this very question. And while the law does not give a definition of neighbor, in fact it goes out of its way at some time, some points, to show that those who are excluded, to those who are unacceptable, are actually part of who a neighbor is, the rabbis sought to exclude people from this command. People like Gentiles, the ritually unclean, prostitutes and tax collectors. By making those categories then, they are trying to determine, trying to set apart how they will fulfill God's commands. They're the interpreters of Scripture and not God Himself. But Jesus rejects a restrictive definition of neighbor here. He rejects categories as He illustrates in this parable of the Good Samaritan. So, the lawyer asks the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't give a direct response, does He? He gives this parable. So what does the parable say about the lawyer's question? Well, the parable opens with a man in verse 30 who is journeying from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is an infamously treacherous road. It descends over 3,200 feet. So Jerusalem is about 26, 2,700 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 700, 800 feet below sea level. So you're talking about a 3,200-foot uh, descent over a course of about 18 miles. So it's a very winding, treacherous road. It's through the wilderness. So there's lots of caves, which would have been great hideouts for robbers. So there are, what Jesus tells here is not necessarily a true story in the sense that it's not something specific that happened to an individual person. He's generalizing a story to teach a point. These kind of things happened. 
It's a very truthful story. In that sense, it's a very uh, reliable story. It's a story that would have been well understood. And so in this parable, the robbers jump the man, they assault him, they strip him of his clothes and belongings, and they leave him for dead on the side of the road. And the implication is clear by what they do to him. This man is seriously injured, and he will die unless someone comes to help him. So certainly, if we just stopped at verse 30, the mood here of the parable would be quite bleak. But verse 31 opens with a note of hope. Fortunes are changing. Hopes are rising. Because it opens up with the words, by chance, fortuitously, miraculously. There is someone who is coming along the road who is going to be able to help this man. And it's not just anyone coming to help. It's a priest. The priest was the appointed official who conducted the religious ceremonies at the temple. There were many of them. There were thousands of them. This one probably was, again, just following the kind of train of thought of the story, perhaps he was leaving Jerusalem in his, his period of service. We, his priest served about two weeks out of the year. Uh, two, two weeks twice a year. So a total of four weeks. Maybe he's on his way home from the temple. Maybe he's just been officiating at his duties there. He's on his way home, going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he comes across this man. The priest is, is the example of Jewish piety. He's the best example of Jewish piety. He's precisely the person you would expect to help in this situation. But instead of helping, he goes out of his way to avoid the man altogether, right? He passes by on the opposite side of the road. There's a Greek word there. It is literally... You got the victim on one side and the priest goes as far to the other side of the road as he possibly can. He is deliberately going out of his way not to help this man in need. He has no concern. He has no willingness to help the victim here. Well, next comes along a Levite, and that would have been very similar. We we have another uh, point here of of optimism and hope. Certainly the Levite will help. Levites were descendants of, of Levi, Jacob's third son. They did not receive an allotment of territory in the, in the inheritance as the land was, was conquered back in the days of Joshua. Their inheritance was the Lord, and so they, they received the Lord as their inheritance by serving at the tabernacle in the temple. They were not priests themselves, but they were assistants, the priest's assistants. They helped the priests to administer the worship duties. They were part of the religious class. They, too, were considered to be very pious. So if the priests are the people that you want to see help you in a situation like this, the Levites were next. They would be the next on the list. But like the priest, the Levite too goes out of his way to avoid this man. He passes by again on the opposite side of the road. Same Greek word. Victim over here. Levite goes as far as he possibly can on the other side of the road to avoid this man. Has no concern, no willingness to help. But in verse 33, along comes a third man, a Samaritan. And again, if you were a Jew who's hearing this or reading this, you're like, oh no. Definitely not going to get help here. Right? The appearance of the Samaritan should grab the lawyer's attention because they were the enemies of the Jews. In fact, the word Samaritan in the Greek here, Luke places it in the emphatic position to draw a sharp contrast between this man and the priest and Levite who had already come by. Jews and Samaritans were sworn enemies of one another. The Samaritans were the descendants of Israelites from the old northern kingdom and also Gentiles that had been forcibly removed by the Assyrians into that region. They intermarried, produced a, a sort of a mixed race, if you will, and the Jews saw them as a, as a half-breed people. They were a mixed race. They were not truly Israelites. The Jews considered them to be idolaters and ritually unclean. And of course, the Samaritans 
return the hate to the Jews. But rather than express hatred for the beaten Jew here, the Samaritan feels compassion for him. Verse 33. As a, Samar- but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He feels very deeply moved by the man's situation, and he enters into his suffering. Shows us here that compassion is not simply a feeling, not primarily a feeling, but it's a response that leads to an action. And so the Samaritan acts with compassion here in six ways. You see, first of all, that he came to where the man was right up next to him. Again, in contrast to the priests and Levites who went to the opposite side of the road in order to avoid the man. The second, we see the Samaritan applies wine and oil to the wounds of the man after he'd been beaten. The wine functioned as an antiseptic to clean the wounds, much like rubbing alcohol. The oil functioned more like an ointment to soothe the wound. And more than likely, the oil and the wine were part of the Samaritan's provisions as he is on his journey. This would have been the way that he would have made his own food and, and, and had his own drink. So he's making a personal sacrifice to attend to the needs of this man. And third, he bandaged the wounds. And again, more than likely, I don't imagine unless he's carrying a first aid kit with him, he's probably ripping up his own clothing to bind the man's wounds, to bandage the man's wounds. He's, again, he's making a personal sacrifice. And fourth, the man is too injured to walk, so the Samaritan puts the man, the victim, onto his donkey loads him for the ride down to the inn. Of course, as he does that, it means he's not going to be able to ride himself. He's going to have to walk the rest of the way, another act of personal sacrifice. Fifth, he takes the man to the inn where he can care for the man and see to his ongoing care. In verse 35, or verse, at the end of verse 34, it says that he took care of him, which meant that the Samaritan probably stayed the night at the inn with the man. It's the most critical part of his recovery. Again, delaying his journey, more personal sacrifice. And finally, the next day, as he prepares to go back out on the road, he prepays the innkeeper for the man's care. He pays him two denarii, which, depending upon the rate at which the victim, the beaten man, was being charged, this could have provided for as much as 24 days of care, room and board, and medical care. And so it's and, and then even more than that, he not only just prepays, he also says if it takes more, if there's more care required, he promises to pay that when he returns. Again, making his own financial sacrifice. So clearly the Samaritan's compassion is evidenced in what he does for this man. Again, not just meeting his need, but doing so at great cost and personal sacrifice. The Samaritan is truly loving his neighbor. He's loving his neighbor. And the irony is that it is the Samaritan, the beaten man's enemy, and the lawyer's enemy, who is doing the loving. He is loving the neighbor, not the priest or the Levite, as the lawyer might expect. After finishing the parable in verse 36, Jesus turns the question back on the lawyer. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And notice he's changed the lawyer's question. Remember, the lawyer asked, Who is my neighbor? Who is the one I'm supposed to love? And Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor? In other words, not so much the person that you're directing yourself to, it's how you are acting toward others. Who proved to be a neighbor? And by changing the question again, Jesus is avoiding the categories of neighbor and non-neighbor that the lawyer is trying to 
put in place to avoid biblical commands. In fact, he puts the onus on the lawyer. What kind of, not who is your neighbor, what kind of neighbor will you be? If it depends on me, then I am not to judge or discriminate who my neighbor is, but I am to be a true lover and worshiper of God who loves my neighbor as myself. The lawyer has no way to wiggle out of this, right? He must answer Jesus' question with the only logical choice. It's the Samaritan who proved to be a neighbor, except he doesn't say Samaritan. Do you notice that? He can't bring himself to say that it's the Samaritan who proved himself to be the neighbor. He just says the one who showed him mercy. The Samaritan is the one who proved to be the neighbor in this situation because he showed true mercy and compassion. The Samaritan loved his neighbor. Jesus commends the Samaritan because he imitated the biblical commands by loving the person in front of him in his time of need. And then, like in verse 28, Jesus challenges the lawyer again at the end of verse 37. You go and do likewise. Again, emphasizing there, you, the used in the emphatic position, you. You go and be like this Samaritan. You do likewise. Jesus, again, is emphasizing here action. Notice the word do happens to come in again. How, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, do this and you will live. Now he says again, go and do likewise. Jesus is emphasizing action here. It's not enough to know the truth. The lawyer must act on the truth. If he truly lives in covenant relationship with God, expressed in loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, then he too will follow the example of the Samaritan and love his neighbor as himself. Again, the issue is not entering into the kingdom or inheriting eternal life by a works-based righteousness. The issue is true faith in God and Christ. And when we truly trust in God and Christ, that faith will express itself in love of neighbor. By illustrating this truth through the parable and challenging the lawyer to obey the commandment to love his neighbor, he shows the lawyer just how short he falls from God's standard. He thinks he's right. He wanted to vindicate himself. I'm doing, I'm I'm a-okay. I got this. By Jesus challenging him him here to do this, he shows the lawyer has fallen far short of God's standard. He may think he is in right standing, but he is far from inheriting eternal life. To truly love his neighbor, the lawyer will have to submit to Jesus. The lawyer falls short according to his interpretation of Scripture and according to his own strength to obey the command. He can't do it. He must trust that Jesus is the Christ of God and the Son of God and follow him as a disciple in order to do what Jesus commands and inherit eternal life. Now, I think it's interesting here. I pointed this out at the very beginning. I want to bring it back to what I started with. It's very easy to see this as a debate. It's very easy to see this as Jesus rebuking, confronting an adversary. But remember that Luke wrote his gospel for the church so that we might have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. Back in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus began to shift his attention, focus his attention specifically on the cross setting his face to Jerusalem, and in doing so, he committed himself intensely to disciple his disciples, to instruct them so they would know what following him looked like. Jesus' encounter with the Jewish lawyer is an opportunity for him to teach his own disciples. And what is he teaching them? What is he teaching us? That being a disciple of Jesus, that living in relationship with Jesus, That gaining eternal life through Jesus means that we too must love our neighbor. This parable 
is for us. We must do like the Samaritan and not restrict our love to people of our own choosing, but we must love, we must be a neighbor who emulates Jesus. We must love those in our path, those in front of us, no matter who they are, no matter what they need. There are no categories of neighbor and non-neighbor. We must have the compassion of Jesus. We must be willing to make sacrifices for the sake of Jesus. By loving our neighbor, we prove that we are his disciples and we give evidence that we have inherited eternal life. So how are you doing? What kind of neighbor are you? How will you love those whom the Lord puts in front of you? May God give us the grace to know. May God give us the grace to help us love our neighbors. And may our love to them imitate the love that Christ, the good neighbor, once showed us and continues to show us today. Let's pray. Lord, we have considered very familiar words. I pray, Lord, that you have brought them to our minds in a fresh way, that you have given us better understanding of your word and perhaps even more better application of them. We need your help in this, Lord. We can, like the lawyer, easily recite the verses. We know Lord, that we need to love the people in front of us. But oftentimes it's much harder to do that. And so we pray for your help. We love you. We trust you. We ask, Lord, you'd help us to love you and trust you even more and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.